The scripture this morning, Psalm 80. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us, restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bullfill. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. God always blesses the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, come now. I pray, among other things, that you would calm my cough and that you would help me to speak today. Thank you that I'm feeling better. You are so faithful and good. I pray now that these words of mine would not be my words, but they may be your words, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pure and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as you can tell, I'm still getting over this thing. And like many of you, you know, you experience the sickness and it takes a while. I mean, it hits hard and then it and then it drops down, but it never doesn't quite go away for a while. It's been about two weeks for me. I know some of you, it's been longer. And when you're sick and it just goes on and on and on. And this is an issue now all over the country, you know, post COVID for all those complex reasons. What used to take a few days to recover now takes a week or two. And so compared to what I've been used to in my life, it's a whole new ball game of length of time. So my doctor told me, it's what the nurse at school said about our Jack, who's doing well too. We both got hit pretty hard, but Jack's in good, better shape now. But when you're in the midst of it, when you're laying there in bed with 102 fever or whatever, you're feeling miserable, you're, you're still feeling feverish even after your main fever breaks, and it's easy to think, what if this never ends? <laughs> How long is this really going to last? How long, oh Lord, am I going to be stuck here? And of course, you think as well of all the people in chronic health conditions. My friend Matt, who's a pastor in Virginia, his um, was a high school friend of mine, and his beloved wife Diane has immune, uh, some uh, immunodeficiency issues. Um, she's got an ailment with that, and it flared up, and she's been in ICU for like three weeks. Her name is Diane. So remember Diane, she's doing better now, but it has been a brutal process for her. Our psalmist is dealing with the same question. How long? How long? But it's not, it's not the virus he has in mind. He writes in verse 4, How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder? against the prayers of your people. You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bullfill. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Mm. There's issues here. This is some real talk. 
It has a smack of reality to it. When we dive into the red hot center of this passage, at the core of it is this how long outcry. But it's not confronting a sickness or a hard time itself. He's confronting God about what God has allowed to happen to Israel. Scholars point out that this psalm was part of a worship um, set of worship hymns. And when it reads in the appellation at the top of the psalm for the director of music, this probably means the psalm was used for Israel's worship services. <laughs> Talk about hard-hitting worship, right? Maybe it was even spoken by the leader of the choir of the Levites. This was the group in charge of leading worship. They would worship on Israel's behalf. Levites would say or sing a psalm with a harp or a lyre playing in the background. Imagine the music playing as they cry out to God. Do you feel like you can do that when you come to worship? There are psalms that are actually psalms of complaint. This is a psalm of communal lament. There's room for that in church. We praise, we honor, we give glory to God. But you know, if you're having a bad day, you can bring that to God too. We are lighting candles in lighting trees in the dark right now in hope. And we do that in hope and in excitement. But the dark is dark. And we can talk about your darkness and bring that to God. That's what the psalm does here. To understand the specific struggle that the psalmist is articulating here, we have to look at a little bit of history with Israel and the historical and geopolitical background of this psalm. After Israel's King David made his son Solomon his heir, In 1 Kings 1, things go downhill from there. Solomon does okay for a while, but then he loses his way. He pollutes the worship of Israel. He uses forced labor. He takes non-Israelite wives, all of which are big no-nos with God. So God tells Solomon, there are going to be consequences. Because of Solomon's failure, Israel would now be divided a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. Israel splits in half. Things get even more messy. There's some good moments with some good kings, as I'm giving you the cliff notes here. But then there's some more, there's more bad moments. God is patient through it all, sending prophets to warn and confront his rebellious people. And sometimes the Israelites get it and they get back on track. But overall, the trajectory, if you're going to plot this, it's downhill. The divided nation of Israel goes into a dangerous and dreadful slide out of their relationship with God. As a consequence of their abandoning God, the northern part of Israel is invaded by a a pretty vicious nation called Assyria. It's an empire to the north. And these Assyrian invasions were the most, as one scholar puts it, were the most traumatic political events in the entire history of Israel. The Assyrians were brutal. They were scary. They invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and they laid siege to the capital of northern Israel, Samaria, for three years. And then they hauled those Israelites off to Assyria in 722 BC. And we have extra biblical um, historical accounts of this through the annals of the Assyrian king. 
embedded throughout the account of all this in Second Kings is an assurance that God is sovereign, God is large and in charge over all of it, and this is a consequence that God is permitting to happen to his people because they violated his covenant. And eventually the same thing would happen to Judah, which is in southern Israel as well. Assyria tries to get him. It doesn't work out. Again, Cliffstos version. But then Babylon, another nation, comes in and is used by God to punish southern Israel. Just as God uses Assyria to punish the north. So anyway, where does this text fit into all of that? Well, there is reason to believe that Psalm 80 was written between the conquering of northern Israel and the conquering of southern Israel. It was written at a time when northern Israel was on the ropes. And scholars point out there's actually archaeological evidence of a major increase in the population of southern Israel at this time because the Israelites in the north were fleeing Assyrian invaders. And so the names mentioned in the beginning of this psalm, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, are names of the tribes of the northern kingdom just north of Judah. So they're all on the run. They're in collapse. What a mess. A nation divided. A nation under attack. And the psalmist gets this. The psalmist says to God, essentially, okay, we blew it. You put us here because we blew it. You're mad at us, and we've suffered because of it. But that's not all the psalmist says here. The psalmist also calls on God to hear us. Shine forth. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us. Make your face Shine upon us. Now, when we consider Israel's track record, this is quite a bold approach. (laughs) Consider what I just talked about. You would think that maybe the guy writing this psalm, you know, maybe he'd bargain with God a little bit and say, okay, God, give us one more chance. We'll be good. If you do this, we'll do that. You, You know, that sort of approach. Bargaining, negotiations. But no, The psalmist is not really pleading. He's not really bargaining. He's not trying to wedge something in to gain leverage over God. And the reason for that appears simple and clear. The psalmist doesn't feel the need for leverage over God because the psalmist has massive confidence in God. When the psalmist says to God, hear us, he says that because he's confident God will listen. When the psalmist says to God, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, he says that because he's confident God will shine. When the psalmist says, awaken your might, he says that because he really believes God is mighty still. When the psalmist says, restore us, he says that because he really believes God is able to do so. There's no sense, put another way, there's no sense in any way, shape, or form that this guy, 
this psalmist is bringing anything to the table himself. In fact, there is no table. There's just God. But God's enough. God himself is the table and God himself is fully able. And everything, I mean everything, depends on that fact. There's nothing this guy, this psalmist, brings to the table except this acknowledgement of the vast awesomeness of who God is. But this is all he needs. And even though there would be tough times ahead for Israel, consequences for their rebellion and their abandoning of God, God would absolutely come through 100% with a long-term deliverance plan. God would ultimately come through with a rescue plan far more mighty and far more majestic than the psalmist could have ever conceived. God would intervene in the most dramatic, dynamic way possible, personally, by coming in the flesh, sending his son, with the son himself taking on the role that Israel could never fulfill in perfect obedience to the father. Fulfilling that role, becoming perfectly obedient to the father in all the ways Israel could not, being the faithful king of Israel in all the ways Israel's kings failed, and even making atonement for Israel's failures at the cross, God comes through. The painful waiting for that rescue, or the painful waiting for God's deliverance, is what we are in the midst of here in Advent. We are in that moment of saying, how long? Sicknesses remind us of that. Maybe waiting for a grade for an exam you're worried about remind you of that. Maybe waiting for a diagnosis, uh, a lab report reminds you of that. Waiting for all these things remind us of this ultimate waiting we have for God who will deliver us from all that assails us and threatens us. This is the God in whom we hope, in whose name we light candles, in the midst of relentless relentless sickness, hurts, messes that we make. A prayer like this psalm reminds us, well, it reminds us that Saying we're sorry and setting a, diff- setting a different course is not sufficient. It has its place. There's definitely places for repentance in scripture. That's biblical. Do it. That's why we confess every Sunday. But a prayer like this, a psalm like this, reminds us that we have to do more. <laughs> the psalm of lament that laments our struggle but that ultimately points to God's provision shows us that while we have to say sorry for our faithlessness, that we also need to pray into God's faithfulness. That is the heart of the gospel, that we are more defined by God's faithfulness than we are defined by our faithlessness. And when we trust that, Again and again and again, we find Advent hope in what God can 
still do. Our brother Dick Hansen is in hospice care now. What a beautiful man. What a beautiful spirit. I love his voice. I could listen to him all day. I love when he talks and shares his life. And he has said to me, and I know Alma sent an email out yesterday, just talking about how thankful they are for all that God's done in their lives. And he said to me, wow, a couple weeks ago, he said, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. So even as our bodies will ultimately fail us, and they will, even as they battle back from sicknesses now, and that's great, and praise God, and that's a sign of God's ultimate deliverance, all of our bodies at some point will fail us, right? But God won't. And Dick knows this. And Dick and Alma are grasped by this. And I am blessed to be a part of um, their journey, sad as it is and hard as it is, um, it is there is also a triumph in trusting in the God who still is faithful and who can deliver and make his face shine upon us even, even in hospice. What person or group of people do you know who face such a battle? who face such an insurmountable struggle that nothing less will do than the God who hears you on their behalf comes to them and saves them and makes his face shine upon them. That's what it means to pray in Advent hope. You know, Adventus in Latin means, uh, it's for the word for arrival. And the, uh, if you look it up, Adventus uh, ceremonies were ceremonies when the emperor arrived in the city. Our emperor has arrived in the baby Jesus. Well, he has, but we're celebrating the fact that he has next uh, next weekend. But we celebrate all the time. He has arrived, and that has changed everything. And he will come again a second time, and that will be the finale of him changing everything. Rescue has arrived, and rescue will come again. Where do you need to remember this in your own life? Where do you need in whatever struggle you have to pray to the God who hears you? Who shines upon you? Who awakens his might? Who restores you? Who makes his face shine upon you? Whether you're dealing with a sickness or a pain inflicted upon you or a mess you made yourself or a mess someone made for you or somewhere in between... Whatever you bring to the table, God, God will hear, God will shine, God will awaken, God will restore. And that promise that is coming the baby Jesus and is coming in his future arrival, when that gets in you, it pulls you forward so that in anything we face, we can pray like this. And we can meet the face of Jesus in full and focused expectation that our faithful God defines us and defines our world more than our faithlessness ever will. May it be so for you and for me.